0: Well, a few weeks ago, I preached a message called A Rich Inheritance. It was the first of the messages that I have been preaching out of what I'm calling the Our Inheritance series. I didn't know that's the way it would go, but that is the way it went. On the heels of that message was a message called Forever Forgiven. And then came the unparalleled love of our good, good Father. And then the promised eternal inheritance. And the last time I ministered was God's breath in man. And today I want to I believe preached the last message in that series, we'll see what happens, but it's a message I'm calling The Gospel of God's Grace. Over the past 27 months, we have stood in the pulpit of Triumphant Grace Ministries. We have stood at the altar of Triumphant Grace Ministries, and we have sat at the piano bench of Triumphant Grace Ministries, and with one voice, a voice that's been unified, We have proclaimed the extravagant love of God, His outrageous generosity, and His great grace. Because of the healing, I believe, that has taken place in our hearts, we can sing the song, My chains are gone. I have been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns. Unending love amazing grace. What I want you to see through today's message is that oftentimes we as believers, we spend way too much time chasing, I want a deep truth from God. Give me something I've never heard before. As a result, we overlook the simplicity of the scriptures that lead to a life filled with meaningful purpose and meaningful ministry. In Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, we find these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now the word favor there is just another way to say grace. You see, often if we're asked to define grace, what do we say? We say it's the unmerited favor of God. So as we read the tail end of that scripture again, it literally is saying to proclaim the year of the Lord's grace. And the word year is not just something we would think of in terms of a calendar year or 365 and a quarter days as we think in terms of year, but the word year is a season. The Bible talks about years and and it's referring to seasons. And so again, the, the tail end of that scripture is literally saying to proclaim the season or even the dispensation of the Lord's grace. And I'm very thankful for people like Andrew Womack and Joseph Prince and Creflo Dollar and a man named John Sheesby, a grace minister, and a man named like Paul White, And these men, these finished work preachers that have stood and proclaimed the gospel. One of the things that really encourages me is the two that I appreciate the most out of that are John Sheesby and Paul White. If you ever get a hold of their messages, I'm going to tell you something, it will radically transform your life. And there are hundreds of their messages to listen to online. You can go to them and you can find them. But both of those men who have pastored in the past have decided that, you know what, we don't need to have a mega church, some big building to authenticate who we are in Christ and the message that we bring. And both of them have cottage ministries, if you will. These are small ministries where they meet in homes and they may meet at a park or they may meet out in somebody's backyard. There is nothing wrong with that. Both of their messages are on the internet, so you can go there and you can listen to that because everything is recorded, so they are preaching to the whole world. I can only imagine the tears that must have stained the papyrus, the parchment, if you will, as Isaiah penned those precious scriptures. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, or to say the acceptable year of the Lord. That was and is and will always be the heartbeat of God, those two scriptures right there. I believe that as Isaiah penned those words innately, he realized, I'm not talking about my own future, I'm prophesying about somebody else's, somebody to come. Compacted into those two verses are the keys that unlock not only the essence to meaningful life, but also the essence to a meaningful ministry as well. Isaiah said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I've come by today to tell you that the Spirit of the Lord is not only upon you, and the Spirit of the Lord is not only with you, and the Spirit of the Lord is not only for you, and the Spirit of the Lord is not only in you. You are one with the Spirit. Oh, I like that a whole lot better. You are one. We are one with the Spirit. The words were recorded by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 17. He said, "But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit." If there was one scripture that you might want to meditate on sometime, it's that one right there. "He that is joined to the Lord," very short and sweet. "He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit." I'm glad when God saved me that he didn't put me just in the trunk. And he didn't put me in the glove box. He said, you know what, son? I'm going to make you one with my son. You're going to be one with the Spirit. We're one with the Spirit. Like Steve was talking about, when God looks at you, all he sees really is Jesus. Because why? Because we are one with Christ. We are one with the Spirit. I was talking to a friend of mine, and because he knows my wife stays away from gluten, he happened to tell me, he said, you know, I've got a buddy out. West. He works for this company where they process and package. I hope I say this right. Wiener Schnitzels. You know what those are? You ever had one? Wiener Schnitzels. That's the way you say it, I guess, in German. He said that's what they do there. And if you've ever worked for a place like that, and I have worked for places like that much younger in life, there's these big vets. They don't do anything on a small scale. They've got huge vats and buckets. I mean, when, when it calls for salt, I mean, it pours salt. in Five-pound bucket full of it. I mean, it just adds the ingredients. And the man said, the other day when I was working, he said, when a bag of gluten came over this vat, he said, on the way over, it ruptured, and he said gluten went all over the floor. Now I've worked in those places, I know it takes a little while to get a cleanup guy over there. And usually the floors are wet, you're, you're spilling stuff on the floors. It's not like in here, folks. And the man told my friend, he says, as I began to work in that stuff, it began to turn into paste. He said it didn't take very long. He said that stuff became so sticky, he's, here's what he said, it literally wanted to pull the boots off of my feet. Do you hear the key word in gluten? glue, (laughs) okay, gluten, gluten. And I thought, wow, we don't have a hard time believing, right, that gluten would pull the boots off of your feet? Then why do we have a hard time believing that grace will pull the sin out of your life? It's just what the Lord said to me last night. I'm like, wow, why is that, God? I mean, are you kidding me? Did you know that when it says that He that is joined unto the Lord, that word joined comes from the Greek word kolao. It means to glue together. I didn't make this up folks you go look in your concordance one time when it says he that is joined to the Lord it literally means you have been glued together with the Lord now listen if God is going to take time to glue you to Jesus this is the most awesome glue there is I mean you think gorilla glue is good this is awesome awesome glue it's a glue that cannot be separated In fact, if you go back into Genesis, God told Adam, he said, for this reason, he said, when he was marrying him to Eve, he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father, and he said, he shall cleave to his wife. That word cleave in the Hebrew now, we're talking Old Testament, means the exact same thing, it means to be glued together. And all he was doing was a type and shadow of just saying, listen, why don't you leave that Kool-Aid father religion and mother religion that you had, why don't you just get glued to my son? And you know what? That's exactly what Jesus did. He paid a penalty at the cross so that we could be glued to Him in Jesus' name. I like it. Friends, the day we were joined unto the Lord, we came with all of our sin. I won't disagree with that. I believe the day I said yes to Jesus, I came with all of my sin. But Jesus couldn't let sin get between Him and us. No. So what did He do? He purged our sin once for all so there was nothing between us. Friends, that is the miracle of the gospel of God's grace is that we are glued together with Christ. Isaiah said, the Lord hath anointed me to preach good news to the poor. You know, that's what we did in Nicaragua. We went to a country that was dirt poor and we preached the good news to the poor and we watched the poor become rich in spirit. We watched the poor get healed. We watched the, the blind eyes get opened. We watched the poor get encouraged. We watched the poor get saved. We watched the poor get delivered. And we were there just simply with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we watched all these awesome things take place. I've come by today to tell you that the Lord has anointed you and you and you. And yes, you too, Lola, to preach the gospel to the poor, to preach the good news to the poor. One of the greatest lies the enemy will whisper in your ear. Well, you know what? Preaching is meant for pastors and teachers and prophets and evangelists and apostles, people that are called, you know, to preach, people that have been gifted by God to preach. That is a lie from the enemy. You see, the word preach just really means to proclaim. Listen. I've said this before, the difference between a teacher and a preacher is one tells it and one yells it. That's all the difference is. <laughs> it really is all the difference. And so you don't have to be in front of a, a pulpit to preach the gospel. The story is told of a little boy. He was poor. He was standing on a sidewalk looking in the window of a shoe store. He was barefoot. He was dirty. It was cold. And a woman came along and said, what are you looking at? Well, ma'am, he said, I was looking at those shoes right there. He said, and I just got through praying, and I asked God to give me those shoes. She grabbed that little boy by the hand, and she took him in the shoe store. And she went over to the clerk. She said, do you have a basin of water? He said, yes, I'll get it for you. And she got down on her knees, and she stuck that little boy's feet in the water and began to wash his feet. And she dried them with the towel that was wrapped around her waist. And then she got up and she went over to the hook and grabbed a pair of socks and took them off and came over and put those pristine white socks on that little boy's feet. It was like the first time he had socks on. It was like his feet were getting a hug. And then she went and picked out the shoes he was looking for. And she came over and got back down on her knees again and put those shoes on that little boy's feet. And I can only imagine that little boy, when he got up, he started marching around with those shoes. You know how you start looking at things in the mirror. And in the quietness of that moment, that little boy looked at that woman and he said, ma'am, are you God's wife? (laughs) You see, the only explanation he had is you must be in the family of God. Nobody could show me this kind of love. Nobody could show me this kind of generosity. Nobody could show me this kind of grace. You must be in the family of God. Friends, let me tell you something. It's easier than you know to preach the gospel of God's grace. Isaiah said that he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Friends, the Lord has commissioned you and me and us to bind up the brokenhearted. In the late 1980s, I was working in a retail establishment in Freeport, Illinois, and a man of God walked in to buy something. I would later on find out his name. His name was Pastor John Hollis. He pastored a Nazarene church. If there was anybody I've ever met in my life that looked the most like Jesus, it was John Hollis. Interesting that his, he had the name John because John means grace. And I came to know Pastor John over the years. When I looked into his eyes, he had the kindest looking eyes I've ever seen. They just melted you. Now, I'm not a believer at this time, so it's a little overwhelming to see that much glory on a person, that much goodness coming from a person. And he was such a gentle man, so much like our Jesus. He didn't move fast, he didn't get in a hurry, he was so gentle, he was so kind, he was so loving, he was so gracious. I thought, okay, I've got to see what goes on at your church. And so there were several times I went over the years to his church. And I would watch a man open the service in his gentle demeanor. And then as they transitioned from opening to the choir, I would watch a man slip away and he would come out with a robe and stand in the choir and with his rich bass voice sing like, God, I'm still thinking, why don't I have that gift as well too? But I would listen to him just sing when the music was over with, the song service was over with. He'd take off his robe and step into his pulpit and deliver the Word of God. I watched him do that on several occasions. In the mid-1990s, one of my sons grew ill. It was a sudden thing and was rushed to the hospital. I was standing in the hallway as a team of physicians were in the room working on my little boy. His name was Taylor Jacob. Can you imagine the tension in a moment like that? And after about an hour or so, the door opened and out walked the doctor. But about two minutes prior to that doctor walking out, Pastor John Hollis came from my left and walked right up to me and stood with me. He was standing there when the doctor told me, I'm sorry, we did everything we could for your little boy. We lost him. Later on in life, I've come to know that we never lose anybody when we know where they're at. So you can't lose something when you know where it's at, right? It broke my heart. I'm just being honest. It broke my heart. It broke my heart. And that gentle shepherd put his arms around me and hugged me. You know what he was doing? He was binding up the brokenhearted. You see, when Jesus said his mission was to bind up the brokenhearted, Those are the kind of things he had in mind. I'm telling you this because we often think about what is my ministry. So many people are caught up, you know, I just can't figure out what my ministry is. (laughs) Your ministry is to preach good news to the poor. Your ministry is to bind up the brokenhearted. And these are the kind of things, buying a pair of shoes for a little boy who just got through praying a prayer, you know, praying for someone who lost a little boy. These are the kind of things that we do. Every one of us can do these kind of things. I hope you already are. Let me tell you something about broken heartedness. Two things. Number one, it is systemic. Everywhere you turn, you'll find somebody with a broken heart. I don't care, north, south, east, west, you find broken hearts all over the place. And broken hearts is no respecter of persons. It will knock on the door of a man, it will knock on the door of a woman. It will knock on the door of a little boy and it will knock on the door of a little girl. It will knock on the door of someone that's churched and someone that's unchurched. It will knock on the door of the wealthy and it will knock on the door of the poor. It is no respecter of persons. Did you know that there are brokenhearted believers? Many are brokenhearted because they have failed time after time after time. And they have the prodigal son mentality when they have failed. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son and i felt the holy spirit say to me last night where do you suppose they got that mentality they didn't get it from daddy daddy would never put that on you and that prodigal son didn't get it from his father either you know who he got it from he got it from the older brother the religious older brother i'm not going there today but you know where i'm going with this thing right and you know what we all had an older brother he could have came in the form of a pastor. He could have came in the form of our own natural daddy, or an uncle, or our own mama. But we all had an older brother that put all that religion on us at one time. And every time they have failed, the older brother is there to throw a fit and be religious. Friends, our worthiness and our holiness are not based upon our performance. It's based upon one thing, and that is the gospel of God's grace. Christians don't leave church because they've stopped loving God. I've not met one yet. I've met many believers that have quit going to church. But I've never found a believer that said, I quit going to church because I just fell out of love with God. It doesn't happen like that. They leave church because they don't know how to shake the viper of condemnation off of their minds. In Acts 27, you find a man called the Apostle Paul. He's on a ship. There are 276 men on this ship. He is a prisoner on the ship. They are taking him to Rome to stand trial before Caesar. They don't get very far into their journey and all of a sudden a hurricane called the Northeaster sweeps down on that ship and it's caught. In fact, the name of that Northeaster is called the Eurachlidon. You know right away that's something bad, don't you? It's called in the Greek the Eurachlidon. And they're caught in this. Can you imagine going to Six Flags and getting on a roller coaster that does all this stuff? Now imagine you can't get off that roller coaster for 14 days. Do you know how sick you're going to be? I mean, these guys were puking their guts out. Their eyeballs were bulging out of their heads. They couldn't eat. They were weak. And even the Apostle Paul got discouraged. The Bible says we had all given up hope of being saved. But an angel in the night came to the Apostle Paul. And he said, do not be afraid, for you will stand trial before Caesar." You will make it to Rome. And he says, not one of these men are going to be lost. All shall be saved. And the apostle Paul encouraged those men. He said, listen, you know, last night when I was sleeping, an angel of the Lord woke me up, and he told me to tell you guys all of this stuff, and it encouraged them, even though they were still sick. Sometimes you don't really need much. You can be so sick emotionally, and all you need is just one little word, and you are so encouraged. 14 days of this junk. And then fast-forwarding, the ship breaks apart as they're nearing this island called Malta. And they all make it to shore safely, just like the angel of the Lord had prophesied. Not one man perished, and all of them didn't know how to swim. Do you know that? Because it tells you in Acts 27, it said the ones that knew how to swim jumped in and swam to the island, but he said the ones that didn't got there on planks. You ever feel like you're over your head? And when they got to the shore, they were welcomed by the islanders. And they knew these guys were hungry and tired and worn out and cold. So the Bible says they built a fire. And the Apostle Paul, now surely this is the man of God. But all he can do is he just wants to keep serving. Surely the other 275 guys should have been doing what he's doing. But the Apostle Paul is the one gathering sticks. He's gathering firewood to throw on the fire. And as he walks up to the fire, he goes to throw it on there and all of a sudden, a snake, they call him a viper, a viper comes out and all of a sudden, he feels this sting feeling on his hand and he looks down and here's this viper hanging from his hand. I don't know if it was a cobra. It could have been a cobra. It might have been a water moccasin. It might have been a rattlesnake. It might have been a coral snake. But whatever it was, it was a deadly snake. And the Bible says that the apostle Paul shook it off into the fire and burned it up and now all the people they thought he was a god at first but now they're thinking he must be a devil because only people that have been bad would deserve something like that i'm coming by today to tell you that when bad things happen in your life it has not been orchestrated by god it is attacked by the enemy you need to learn how to shake things off into the fire and let god burn it up okay and so they watched the apostle paul thinking, okay, it won't be long. His blood will be coagulating. He'll start to get really lethargic. He'll want to lay down. His eyes will start popping out of his noggin. You just watch. We've seen this happen before, but nothing happened. Nothing happened to the Apostle Paul. Wow, God, are you kidding me? I heard the Word Lord saying, learn how to serve in the midst of shipwreck. When you see shipwreck around you, learn how to serve, not for your identity. The Apostle Paul was not serving to prove who he was. He knew who he was in Christ. Shake off the vipers. But a lot of people don't know how to shake that viper off of them, the viper of condemnation, the viper of religion. In the midst of failure, the church's message has been, you need to pray more, brother. (laughs) You need to fast more, my friend. You need to read your Bible more, and all those things are wonderful things to do. But that is not the remedy, friends. The broken message of the performance centered gospel is no good news at all. In other words, if you are thinking you're going to perform to please Jesus, you're going to perform to get what you need from Jesus, that is not the gospel, friends. It is not. It's a viper that you cannot shake off. Your viper repellent is the gospel of God's grace. Isaiah said, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. How does one do that with the message? of god's grace the gospel of god's grace when we hear the words the gospel of god's grace gospel just means good news and grace just means jesus okay because he is grace so literally when i say the gospel of god's grace i'm literally saying the good news of god's jesus and in psalm chapter 34 verses 17 and 18 we find these words the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles, just like He did Paul, just like He did the little boy in front of the shoe store. The Lord is close, look at that, to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Isaiah prophesied that this man will proclaim liberty to the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. The gospel of God's grace is the only truth that has the power to liberate and release a person from the prison cell of religion, from the prison cell of performance, from the prison cell of stronghold, from the prison cell of condemnation, from the prison cell of fear, from the prison cell of guilt, and from the prison cell of shame. Let me tell you what the difference between guilt, shame, and condemnation is. They all sound the same, don't they? Guilt, shame, condemnation. Here's the difference. Guilt Will say, You have made a mistake, and it will be in your face. Look at the mistake you made. Look at the mistake. You've made a mistake. Shame says you are the mistake. And condemnation says you have to pay for your mistake. Did you see what the enemy does? He beats the stuffing out of it. All that stuff is guilt, shame, condemnation, fear. It's just a viper on our wrist. Learn how to shake that stuff off of it. Don't entertain it. Don't pet the snake, okay? Shake him off into the flame. There's no point in doing that. How does a person bind up the brokenhearted? By preaching the good news. How does a person impact the poor? By preaching the good news. How does a person liberate the captives? by preaching the good news how does a person dispel darkness by preaching the good news how does a person proclaim the year of the lord's grace by preaching the good news you can ask me a thousand questions i'll give you the same answer because that is how you do it by preaching the good news letting the good news get inside of you walking in the good news living in the good news don't take anything else take his good news so then what is the good news of god it's the gospel of god's grace I know I'm sounding like a little bit of a broken record here. That's exactly what it is. There is no other book in the Bible that over the last several years has taken more chains off of me than the book of Romans. You know that. I've got a love affair with Romans, don't you? I haven't found a book yet, and yet the weirdest thing, I stayed away from Romans for most of my Christian life. I just, I would go in there, but I wouldn't study it. I would just pick out a scripture here and there. I was a gospel man. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's where it's at. I need to teach them all about the gospels. And I agree, the gospels are cool. But for some reason, I just wouldn't get over there and study Romans. And you know what I found? I found a love affair because I became so free in the book of Romans. And so when I think about Paul, it is his first book of the New Testament, Romans. It's not the first book he wrote. They just happened to take Romans and move it to be the first book so that we could get that foundation as we move forward the rest of the bible after the the gospels one thing i learned about public speaking is this it's very important to make a good thesis statement a thesis statement is is what you do up front it could be one sentence it could be one paragraph it could be one page it could be 10 pages a thesis statement just says this is where we're going okay so when you hear us say things like what i want you to see today from this message And then you hear the words that follow that, that is the thesis statement, so that people know where you're going. And so the Apostle Paul, when I think about him, it didn't take him very long to make his thesis statement when he wrote Romans. Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul, he says, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, watch what he says, separated unto the gospel of God. Separated unto the gospel of God. So, what he's doing here, he is setting the whole tone for the book of Romans. He says, Let me tell you right up front, I am separated for one reason, and that is the gospel of God. And he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Seems to me there's a scripture there where Jesus said, I no longer call you servant, but I call you friends. When I look at something like this, I'm like, wait a minute now, the Apostle Paul called himself a servant, but that was not his identity. He wasn't saying, this is who I am. I'm just a, I'm a servant. In other words, this is not my identity. Here's what he was saying. I'm not serving to become, I'm serving because. Listen, you'll never hear us say in the message of grace, you don't need to do anything. You don't need to do anything for your identity. You don't need to do anything to be right with God. That's true. But we don't have lazy boy Christianity. We go out and we preach good news to the poor. We bind up the brokenhearted. Now, the Apostle Paul is still kind of laying his thesis statement. As we skip up eight verses, it says this. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, watch this, in the gospel of his Son. Now, he just said in verse 1, the gospel of God. Now, he's saying it's the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers and then he's still not done because as we skip up seven more verses to Romans chapter 1 verse 16 he says for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ the gospel of God the gospel of his son the gospel of Christ and I heard the word of Lord saying the gospel should always point to a person a person of the Godhead and that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing here Christ is not Jesus' last name. Some people actually think it is. If you would say, What's Jesus' last name? They'd say Christ, I guess. <laughs> oh. We used to ask people, what's John the Baptist's middle name? Maybe like his middle name? I don't know if it's there. Yeah, it's the <laughs> John the Baptist. The word Christ literally means anointed one. And so what he's saying is for I am not ashamed of of the gospel of the anointed one, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Let's establish for certain that Isaiah 61 is a prophetic declaration of Jesus Christ. Let's look at a couple more scriptures that validate that this is Jesus that Isaiah is prophesying about when he said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. In Matthew chapter three, verses 16 and 17, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. Friends, this is the manifestation of what Isaiah saw. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Did you notice that Isaiah and Matthew essentially said the same thing? When Isaiah penned his words, he was looking into the future. When Matthew penned his words, he was looking into the past. But they both pointed to Jesus, the gospel of God's grace. There are those that are critical of our ministry. You don't know it unless I tell you. But people will tell me. And they will just say, You know, there is really more to preach about. I've heard this by more than one person. There's really more to preach about than than love and grace. You know, love is just another way to say God, and grace is just another way to say Jesus. So what they're essentially saying, you know, there's more to preach about than God and Jesus. Really? Have at it. (laughs) Go for it. Build a church if you want to. Christ is the power of salvation. The anointed one is the power of our salvation. And so this ministry will always be a ministry that points to Jesus. And as we think about the history of Jesus coming into the world, in Luke chapter 1, Mary becomes pregnant. Luke 2, Jesus is born. Didn't take very long. Luke 3, Jesus is now 30 years old, and he gets baptized by John in the Jordan River. And then right after he's baptized, he is led by the Spirit of God into the desert or into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. The Bible says that's where he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. I want you to see, now we're on the right side of the 40-day fast, Jesus is done with all that, essentially His ministry is really beginning because the Spirit of God has descended on Him, He's got away with God for 40 days and 40 nights, and God would have been just speaking awesome things into His Son over those 40 days and 40 nights. And so after Jesus, in uh, Luke chapter 4, is led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and He comes out of that time of fasting and praying, here's the first thing He does beginning in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered under him the book of the prophet Isaiah. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Out of all the books you could have picked, you had to go and pick that one. And the Bible says, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. I'm going to stop here for a second and just say this. I'm sure they had it outlined and set right where they wanted him to read it. The Bible says, he found the place where it was written. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Do you see? Isaiah was talking about Jesus, wasn't he? He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised to preach the acceptable year of the Lord or to preach the Lord's favor. And then he closed the book and he gave it to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say to them, This day... This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. What scripture? The scripture he was reading, the scripture that Isaiah prophesied about. He said, this day, that scripture has finally came to life. It was just laying dormant there for a while, but finally it's came to life and it's inside of me. When Jesus read the scroll, he was affirming, I am the one that the prophet Isaiah was talking about. Continuing, In Luke chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. They said, isn't this Joseph's son? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum, or Capernaum as we say, Capernaum. And so when I looked at that, I said, okay, God, what is it that Jesus did in Capernaum?" Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. A few days later, when Jesus entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. Watch this now. And he preached the word to them. He preached the good news to them. He preached the gospel of God's grace to them. Isn't that what Isaiah said he would do? He would preach the word. Let me tell you something. Don't ever think you've got power without God's word. I'll tell you what, I've seen God take his word in something. whether you're praying it or preaching it or just speaking it, his word is where the power's at. You get away from God's word, I'm gonna tell you something, you will not have any power. And the Bible says he preached the word. He went back home and preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and lowered the mat the man was lying on. How many men? Four carrying him. And then you've got the one man, right? That's five. Five is the Hebrew number for grace, right? And as I showed you the next slide a couple of weeks ago, count in from the top right to the left. Aleph Bet. Gemel, Dalet, hey. What does hey look like? Looks an awful lot like my Jesus. A man with lifted arms. You see, they knew, listen, if I can get my friend in front of this teacher, He came to heal the sick. He came to bind up the brokenhearted. Do you imagine the the heartbreak that was inside this man? It wasn't that his legs were broke. His heart was broke. His mind was broke. I want to tell you something. When you get broken, it becomes systemic. It starts to work its way all throughout the whole man. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Interesting that he would say that. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Several years ago, after reading this story, I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, did you notice that the paralyzed man did not leave the same way he came? And as I was meditating on that last night, I thought, you're so right, God. He came through the roof, and he left through the door. He came brokenhearted and with broken legs, and he left healed. He came with no favor on his life, and he left full of favor. What I mean by that is the people wouldn't even let him get up to the door. I mean, come on, really? I mean, if you see a guy in a wheelchair, really? I mean, you usually let them go to the front of the line, don't you? People wouldn't even let him come through the front door. So because of the tenacity of he and his friends, they decided to go around the house and climb up the roof and start digging. It's it's a weird story, but it's true. It it did happen. I can't imagine, you know, if someone started doing that here, I I would just have to stop the service and go look at the faith. (laughs) Look at that faith. Look at that faith. And that's what got Jesus' attention. Did you notice he was the last to come, but he was the first to leave? Jesus said, the last shall be first, the first shall be last. He came a sinner and left forgiven. Everything changed in that man's life. Why? Because Jesus was preaching the word, and he was there to bind up the brokenhearted. That was his first mission after the Holy Spirit had anointed him with power and glory. And then I heard that song I learned in my Pentecostal church growing up. I sang it to you once before. You may have forgot it. It doesn't have many lyrics, but it's pretty powerful. It says, you won't leave here like you came in Jesus' name. You remember that song, Bound, oppressed, tormented, sick or lame, for the Holy Ghost of Acts is still the same, and you won't leave here like you came in Jesus' name. There was nothing the same about that man after the power of the Holy Spirit came upon him. Can you imagine the commotion when those five men reached home and were inundated with questions? their answer would have been, I don't know what to tell you. All I know is today we came face to face with the gospel of God's grace. The man with lifted arms. And it changed everything. Friends, Jesus lived the ministry that Isaiah prophesied about in Isaiah 61 when he penned the words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He hath anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and released from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is our inheritance. In closing, I want to say this. In Acts chapter 20, verses 20 through 24, the physician Luke is writing the book of Acts and he's writing about his buddy Paul. (laughs) He loved Paul. And he says these words, these are Paul's words. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. And I heard the Lord say to me last night, son, you have done the same thing. You have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to your people. I thought, man, I'm in good company if the Apostle Paul said that too. But have taught you publicly and from house to house. I want to tell you something. Most of our ministry is done outside of the church. It's house to house. It's phone to phone. I've led more people to Jesus outside of the church than I have in the church. Take a hold of that, because as you go, friends, go house to house, phone call to phone call. He says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And absolutely, we will say, if you want to be saved, you have to turn to God in repentance. No question about that. The Apostle Paul says, and now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Listen, I don't like to hear that any more than you do. The message of grace is not that you're insulated from situations. The message of grace is that He's always with you. The message of grace that is that you are one with Him. So if you're caught in the middle of a Euroclodon, if you're caught in the middle of a storm, if you're caught in the middle of a hardship, if you're caught in the middle of something, Jesus will be right there with you. And if he exempted you and me from every single hardship, you know what? People would come to Christ for the wrong motives. I'm not kidding you. They would come like, really? If I just come to him, I'll never have another problem. I'll never be sick another day in my life. I'll never have another issue in my life. They would come not because they had broken hearts for Christ or because of their sin. They would come to get. And so the Apostle Paul says, I'm going to face prison and I'm going to face hardships. However, I love that conjunction. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. I don't think about me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. That is where the inspiration for this message came from when I was looking in that scripture right there, and I saw that, and I said, wow, The task I have on my life, God, is to testify to the gospel of God's grace, the power of God's grace, the resurrection power of his grace. Wherever I go, I can tell people about the gospel, the good news of God's son, Jesus. Jumping up about eight verses, Luke said this, well, Paul actually said it, Luke recorded it, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Look at that word. The word of his grace is what builds you up. The word of his grace is what deposits and unlocks this rich inheritance that we're talking about. It's the word of his grace. Friends, I didn't make this up. This is the Bible. This is God's word. Did he say it? He said, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace the word of his son, which can build you up and give you an inheritance. And then jumping up to verse 36 and 37. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. Kind of like the little lady in the shoe store when she knelt down and touched the feet of that little boy. He knelt down and prayed. They all wept and they embraced Paul and they kissed him. My goodness. These are the elders of Ephesus that he's talking to, that he sent for. This is the leadership. What hurt their hearts the most is Paul will tell them, I'm about to leave. Take one good long look at my face for I shall never pass this way again. you have seen my face for the last time. And it broke their hearts. I was thinking about that. Why did the elders love Paul so much? There is one explanation, friends. It's because every time the Apostle Paul spoke to them. He poured into them the only message that will set a man free from religion. And it is the message, the gospel of God's grace. Father, I want to thank you in Jesus' name. I've had such a good time, Daddy, making you look good. Thank you, my Father. Thank you for the gospel of God's grace. It's so rich. Daddy, I want to thank you for this, our inheritance series that you deposited in my heart to give to your people. Daddy, I have proclaimed the word, and Daddy, I thank you that I'm fully aware that there's so much power in your word. Daddy, we leave here more than just encouraged. We leave here full of power and full of the gospel of God's grace. In Jesus' name, amen.